You're listening to the 405 Exchange Podcast. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and this episode is with Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly. To say he's a fixture of the UK indie music scene would be such an understatement. For over a decade, Sam Duckworth has released eclectic records full of lyrics that always force the listener to reflect on life itself. Now back with a new album, Young Adult, he's forcing us to also reflect on the world around us and our place within it. It feels cliche to say that this is his most personal record yet, but it truly is. And it's one of those records you'll listen to and find yourself looking deep within your own mind and your own heart long after the final track finishes. With this talk, we go deep into the album and why it's important to have our connect with people. This is the 405 Exchange with Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly. Enjoy. So this was the longest gap you had between uh, Get Cape Records, and I'm curious, what changed in your life between Young Adult and London Royal? Um, London Royal was actually a record that um, was half-finished, I guess, for use of a better expression. Um, After doing Maps, which is my fourth record, um, I went straight into the studio to kind of start writing the next. But as, um, as we were touring Maps, I ended up getting pretty sick. And kind of then decided once I kind of started to recover that I didn't want to do Get Cape anymore, but I didn't want to let the London Royal songs just kind of hang around. So then when we did when I did the final Get Cape tour, which I've obviously changed my mind on now, and um, just wanted to get those songs out. So this is really probably finished actually consciously the first record I've done in Get Cape in six years. So quite a lot's changed to be honest. It's been. Uh, pretty much every aspect of my life is different. What does it feel to be able to say that? I mean, that must be a pretty, like... I mean, I feel like that's one of those things that you say about how your life is different in your head while you're saying it. You're like, oh, wow. like. Yeah, it's... Uh, I guess it's... You just expect it, I think, if you're um, a musician and especially one that's politically minded and in the climate that we live in at the moment. You know, I think the whole format of listening to music has changed the way that people are, you know, people, I think people are listening to more music, but buying less, you know, how that's affected playing gigs. And also just as a, you know, as a human being, like living in cities is less of a possibility as an artist. So where I live's changed and I know where I work's changed. It's yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a, throwing me straight in at the deep end on the first question but um, <laughs> no it's good but no, of course. yeah it's, it's different but I think I wanted to make a record that also said that quite a lot of people I know and quite a lot of people go through a radical shift and actually like older people are just like yeah you do that that's life and I think when you kind of have the school university go out and do your thing that kind of pattern that you know, pretty much everybody that went to, through the British school system goes through that, whether it's university or whether it's straight into the workplace. You know, there's that kind of, you know, everybody's on the same path. So you have marker points and you have milestones and then you get to a certain age and you have to set your own or they don't exist. No, I think that's you know, very... You promote... Oh, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just, I was just going to say, I think that's a very true thing that you're saying <laughs> in regards to that. I think it even relates to what it's like being here in America as well. 
Yeah, what, which part of America are you in? Uh, I'm in New York. Like, uh, I did high school in, like, the suburbs of New York, and I did uni in uh, New York City. And, um, I mean, I've been fortunate to travel quite a bit for work, but it is one of those things where it's kind of like a lot of what you're saying and a lot of the themes I found on the record are very relatable. And, um, you know, just going into the record a little bit, I feel like with Young Adult, it felt like if you had a mission with the album, it was to have dialogue be at the center of the album, that you wanted to present to people what you went through and what people in your life have been going through, but more so that people who listen to the album could talk about it amongst themselves. Would that be fair to say that the aspect of dialogue was very important to you? I think it had to be, otherwise it, I don't know if it had been such an enjoyable record to make. I don't know whether it had been a more relatable record to listen to. Um, I, I think there's a flippancy that I needed to retain. You know, I think some of the stuff is, you know, and, and some of the changes that are going on in the world and when things radically are different, like one day it's one way and then suddenly it's another way, whether that's politically or personally, that, that flux and that changing, that the subject matters that they can be so specific that, I don't know, if I, were, if I laid mine out, I think it would get away from the conversation, which is that a lot of those things are happening because of ideological and political choices. You know, we're not, we don't have the, you know, the prosperity and the ability to think and do and be free in the way that we were told that we would have because people have been priced out of you know, living alternative lifestyles. And I think that that's, you know, that's the core of the record. It's the kind of point that I want to make with it is that most of the things that are hard in your life about being skinned or about being stressed or about working too much are confines of government and of business and not of your own personal choice. And that is okay to put the stress of your life and blame and the things that you're like, that is grinding me down. It's like, that is because that's by design. I just don't think we talk about it enough, you know, and I wanted the first kind of point I made, because Get Cape's always going to be political, but it's kind of sentimental, and I don't want it to ever feel like I'm trying to wrap points down someone's throat. So it's good that, you know, it's really complimentary, actually, that you've got that point from it, because, I don't know, I don't want to make records that, you know, the, the stimulus isn't open, you know, it allows people to kind of, think around the subject matter rather than be like, here's Sam's experiences so laid out. So just think, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it and I'm not sure it'd be listenable. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And to be honest, I felt like I got that even within, like the first tune that I heard off the record when you released it was uh, VHS Forever. And mm. I'm really curious how this tune came together because I feel like it's quite a good example of that aspect of dialogue that we've been discussing. Like, what do you feel this song says about the album as a whole? Um, I think it's almost a release from some of the other songs. I think that there's a tension that kind of is in the unresolved question songs. I think the front of the record is a bit more unresolved and the back is a bit more, you know, whether it's fully resolved, it feels just a little bit more like a release. And VHS Forever, I just, to be honest with you, I just thought all of those words in combination rhymed really well And when it comes to verse one and verse three, because I think the world is kind of zipping by at 100 miles an hour. And, you know, especially like scrolling through social media, you can be from, you know, philosophy to family to sports in three scrolls. So you kind of start to see things that rhyme with each other that you wouldn't necessarily put together. 
And I think that a big part of nostalgia is grabbing all of those bits from eras and wrapping them up and being like, you know, here, here, we're back in the 90s again. But I think that the world's still present and that might sound a bit overblown, but I really wanted to make a really fast kind of fuzzy Britpop song that just had stupid lyrics. <laughs> and I think that, that that's kind of the point of it, is that it's like everything else is like, here's the poignancy. And it's like, yeah, sometimes you go into a shop and you're like, oh my God, everyone's dressing the same as how I used to dress. And that's a place that always leads to, oh no, I'm getting old. But I just wanted to have one that wasn't that. It was just like it, it ends at the doors of Urban Outfitters. <laughs> it's just a bit more of a kick in the kick in the face. You know what I love about that is I feel like that playfulness is a pretty strong aspect because I mean there there are such themes going on in the record that are very contemplative, but it's really nice to see that the element of playfulness and the joy of just making music can still kind of live coincide with that. Like um, I feel like this comes across really well within like the live video that you have for that song and some of the other songs. I mean. Like, do you feel like that kind of comes across when you're playing live, that a sense of joy? Yeah, the last show that we did, we had 12 people on stage. And wow, it zips by because <laughs> it's just so much fun. And it's nice because the live videos, you know, very much introducing the idea that like this is a proper band and this is how things are done. But, um, you know, on stage, going through some of the older tracks, some of the more kind of drum and bassy, jungly tracks... And then also like getting faster and heavier with tracks like VHS Forever, like it's, it's great fun. Like, I, th- I think I really don't want to do shows that feel like political rallies because I think that there are political rallies, and I think that it's it's still about me, you know, having music being political, but the political point being like joy and hope are linked, and if you don't have one, like you start to lose the other. And yeah, I think having loads of people in a band and making loads of noise is a good way to achieve that. Yeah, I feel that. You know, talk to me about the story behind Adults. I'd love to hear the story behind that track. Um, I think we're in a situation now where you can see an event firsthand and read about it on a popular news outlet and it not correspond to what you've seen. Yeah. And I think that's a really unusual trait that that kind of, you know, mechanical bias, you know, human to human bias that has apparently plagued history, you know, but on all historical documents, there's always that sense of how accurate is it? I mean, the fact that we have video and the fact that we have all this technology at our disposal and we're still at that point. That I just find that I don't I don't know what it means, but I find it strange that it's getting harder to find the truth because it should be getting easier. And the whole point of it is that it was supposed to be easier. But it's, be, it's become easier to distort and therefore it's become harder to disseminate right from wrong and truth from fiction. And I think that's the big change that's happened in the last 10 years is that half the world are broadcasting and half the world are watching, you know, in certain bubbles but that's not the whole lives and that's not the whole world. It's just concentrated microcosms. And I think that that is dictating international political discourse and narrative. And that, you know, that scares me because that's, you know, you read about that in history lessons at school about how bits of information that were passed from place to place were doctored on the way. So now you can see it, 
you can video it and somebody will go, well, no, that's not what happened. It'll be an argument. And by the time that it's got to that point, no one's really even watched the video. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think what's very uh, significant is that, um, I mean, I feel like these are the types of conversations I definitely have with some friends, but I think one of the big things is that people broadcast their, I feel like sometimes people broadcast their lives so much it's, you almost get the sense that people are forgetting to actually live their lives. Like those quiet moments when you're by yourself or with your friends and you're not uh, broadcasting what's going on. It feels much more fleeting than it should. Or a lot more rarer, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah I, fully, uh, you know, I fully agree with you on that in, in the sense that any environment that you're in where you're looking at something secondhand, it's never the same as, you know, it's like being at a festival. It's cool to be there and to listen to it, but looking at it through the screen, it'd be great if you, you know, felt young and energetic enough to run to the front. So there's always, you know, it's different experiences in different environments. I, I think some people love taking photos and I think some people love videoing things. And I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, certain art forms should be like no phones. But I think that there's this idea that that's the issue. And I don't necessarily think that's the issue. I think that blaming social media for, it's, you know, it's number one design flaw, which is that it made it competitive. If it wasn't about ranking, it wasn't about likes, and it wasn't statistical analysis, I think it would be a really good thing. You get to see the world through other people's eyes. But I think because people are getting, you know, sucked into this idea that they've got to film this song because that's going to be a song that people want to see, it's... I don't know, we should, have, we should have gigs being live-streamed and then people wouldn't need to Instagram it and they could just take photos of themselves or their friends and it'd be fun. And it would be a better quality, but we're not really at that point technology-wise. And I don't know, I think that it, it's about finding the balance. I think it's about everybody finding the best bits of these technologies and utilising them and having fun with them, but then making sure that moments that sink in, sink in through your eyes and not through your screen. And you can have both. And I think that those triggers, for me, the thing that I'm consciously trying to do is make sure that it's not just a case of I'm not having any photos of that event that I went to because I don't want to touch my phone. Because I always used to take photos when I had a camera. And I don't carry a camera because I do it on my phone. So I'm just trying to make sure that I find that balance. I think this movement, to, you know, I did, I've done gigs where people put your phones in their pockets, but people feel uncomfortable it's kind of become like a, you know, a safety blanket. And that is what social media is designed to do. And I think so much blame gets put on the user. But I don't know if it was about, well, that's a nice picture. Or, you know, if it's about comments and non-destructive comments and not about likes, I think it would be less of a thing where people are going, like, I need to have my alone time without my phone now because it would be less addictive. No, I think there's definitely some truth to that. You know, jumping back real quick on adults, there was a lyric I wanted to ask you about because I found yeah. it to be so poignant and it stuck out to me quite a bit. Uh, within the song, you say, hope is going to be the death of me. And I wonder if all these types of things we've been discussing about social media and how people interact and how the world feels so different, I wonder if some of that inspired this lyric or in any particular way. Yeah, definitely. I think it's harder to hope than it is to not, especially if you know that you're holding on to hope and you're not 100% sure it's going to happen. I think that that's the theme for me is that is that uncertainty is way too big a backdrop at the moment than I think a lot of people necessarily expected it to be. I think we grew up in a society of relative 
stability and you know we were told that things would be affordable and opportunities would be there and we just need to hold out hope and go through the path and it hasn't happened and I think that then becomes really hard to trust you know to trust that things will change and that things will get better and I think that then it becomes about okay how do I maintain that ideology that I have that it will and that's where hope starts to wear down you know I think that's what it's about it's like I'm going to I like that song a lot. I like to play it. So I know that I'll be singing it a lot in my life. And I think sometimes I just leave lines there that are like a bit too heavy <laughs> just to kind of be like, okay, that's how I was feeling at that point. You know, just like emotional quantifiers, I guess, just something where it's like, you don't really feel like that, but here's how ridiculous it sounds, you know, or here's how you must have meant it at that point. Well, that kind of goes to what I was saying before about the poignancy, I think. Because there's something to that, where it's like, even if you're not feeling that way after uh, the song is made, or even well after uh, a couple months or years of performing it, it's still going to resonate with people, and I think is very fascinating. I think that comes from having to constantly play and write and know that things come back. You have to play them again. Not just because you know, people might want to hear them, but also because uh, that's what singer-songwriters do, especially when they play on their own. So like certain songs, you know, stick with you. I went to see um, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco at the Barbican and just played for like an hour and 40 minutes, like 25 years worth of songs. And, you know, if you put them as a compilation, they'd be incredibly different. But the idea that it's like you can hear the differences in the, you know, the eras by the type of songs and those structures... You know, I wanted to make sure that that stuck through in the work that I was making. That's really beautiful. You know, I want to touch on uh, activism with you. We, t- we talked about this a little bit briefly at the start, but I really want to talk to you about this because it's become quite a big part of your life. And I'd love to hear about your experiences in becoming more active and why being active in politics is something that's been quite important for you. I think because ultimately I really, really, really don't want to have any involvement in any politics in my life whatsoever. <laughs> I think that's why I'm politically active. I think if it, if I didn't feel like if we broke through a big wall, things would get easier, I wouldn't be trying to push the wall over. Does that, no, that, does makes, that make it? That makes a lot does of sense. that make sense? No, it does. I mean... Uh, you know, something that's been in- interesting for me in the last couple years is um, I'm 27 and I bring that up because uh, several friends of mine who are like either my age or somewhat older um, have been having children. And what's been mm. interesting with that is I would say probably within my teens and even my young adult years, well, I'm still young, but my young adult 20s, uh, the aspect of politics wasn't something I found very um, engaging or interesting or I didn't really find myself of incentive to care. But with friends of mine having children, I mean, it's probably a very old adage, but I've been finding myself looking at these children and thinking that, wow, we really need to actively work on making the world a better place because these are the people that I I, I care about in having a better world, more so than myself or people my age. And it's interesting how, like, that almost seems quite typical, but it still surprises you when it happens. And uh, for me, that is the key to how things change, you know, Big, you know, generational changes and generational shifts have caused, you know, things to be put in place across the world that have just been universally better. You know, and I think sometimes they happen by activism and campaigning and sometimes they happen naturally. 
But I think that, you know, uh, you can look at a child and say, you know, we want you to live in a fair world. And by sit, by having that feeling and that emotion, it realize, you realise that the world's not fair at the moment. You know, I think that's the, that's the other side of that coin. And I think why there needs to be some kind of big shift because at the moment like, the world is not caught up with itself. You know, I think that people that are, you know, I think this idea of like hyper greed coming at the expense of, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's not, it's not sustainable. And I think that as documentary gets better and as climate change research gets better, people have started to realise that it's really not a good idea to continue accelerating this because it's the extinction level behaviour. And I think that society hopefully will catch up in other aspects of the same thing because, I don't know, I don't think anybody that has grown up with the internet in the last 10 years, you know, that jump in that period of time I and mean, what people have known in a knowledge base and organisation level and to be able to see way more sides to different coins. And that, there's not really been that kind of culture shift since the invention of the printing press. And I think that, that like, that's a revolution, potentially revolutionary time. And I think that the power is shifting away from the super rich and the answers are really obvious as to how to balance society better and that is to just curtail greed you know allow ambition but just when it comes to greed that's when the rules are you have to abide the same as everyone else you can't get out of things because you're rich and i think that, that once that starts to change and it trickles down i don't know i believe that the world could be radically different i think that there are lots of people fighting long and hard and creatively to lay those foundations and I think where they existed traditionally politically I don't think they're like that anymore I think well you know climate change has suddenly seemed to have you know the, the climate change action movement has just penetrated everywhere and it's a universally accepted idea that we need to recycle more and use less greenhouse gases but 10 years ago that was still open to debate you know there's been some massive successes and I think that that's come from you know, people having kids, but also people having tools and resources, you know, computers and technology. And I think that that's also going to be the generation shift. And I know Brexit over here is a great example. It's, like it's such a hard generational split between people that want it and people that don't. And it's almost, you know, completely, you know, based on people that have been to Europe when they're in their formulative years or not. You know, it's a big part of it and the world's opened up, the map's opened up and horizons have opened up. And I think after the flux, there's room for big universal truths. And I'd like to hope that that's the time we're living in and not the generation that, that caused it to get rapidly worse quickly. Well, I think what showcases all the evidence for what you're saying, uh, specifically the aspect of how people communicate now, I mean, what I love about talking about this with you is it runs so intrinsically with this album that you've made where dialogue is at the centerpiece of it all. And in regards to what you were just saying, I think what's very much evident that the world is going to change is that if you think just back 20 years ago uh, to like 19, you know, 97, 98, I don't think anyone could have guessed the world would be at a place where it is now. I mean, I find myself, I can't help at times <laughs> then wondering how the world's going to be 20 years from now yeah. and how people communicate and uh, implement these ideas that we discuss. If it carries on at 
the acceleration that it has done over the last 20 years is going to be equally radically different. Exactly. And, yeah, my mind always has to go to it being radically different for the better because at the moment it's kind of getting radically different for the worse, except in a few aspects. And I think in other aspects it's rapidly swung the other way. And I think that there'll be equilibrium within that because I don't really know. I think that's the hope be the death of me part is that if it gets to a point where it feels that that generational handover from our, you know, our age to our kids and their kids to their kids, like if any, you know, responsibility that comes from handing that over in a way worse mess that simply comes from apathy or comes from lack of human endeavour or organisation or, you know, democratic manpower, I think that, you know, that's that's where we need to really and rapidly put our foot down as an age group and say, okay, like we're not just going to make a few positive changes in our life. We can demand that the big changes that we want also happen. Because, you know, that's that's how I'm wired because I, I have to be. Otherwise, I'll go crazy, I think. Yeah, I could definitely understand that. You know, I wanted to, we talked a little bit about live shows briefly about how, I mean, you brought up how you have essentially 12 people on stage. I mean, how do you feel now as a performer? Does having these new songs make you feel different about the live show along with how much bigger it's gotten? Yeah, hugely. It's, it's a completely different world. You know, and I, I'm excited by it. It's, I, I think I've been doing so much where the computer was the centerpiece. And I think it's, you know, I've been playing with the laptop and like backing tracks or electronic samples for over a decade. And I'm not, I'm not doing that, but still having that kind of similar sense of rhythm and fullness. It's, it's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to have a giant band. I think that, um, I don't know, I, I grew up, I love ska punk and, you know, a lot of other types of bands I enjoy listening to always like eight or nine piece you know because i really like i love trumpets and brass and how that sits but also you know keyboards and synths if you're going to have them played by humans and not by machines you're going to need more <laughs> well and, uh, i don't know it's, it's it's the optimum it's the hardest thing to route like trying to book three or four shows is taking months but it's worth it you know, I wanted to talk to you about that specifically a little bit because I saw a few weeks back that um, you made a candid post about how the prices of tickets would have to rise due to the current quality of your live show. I thought that was great, though, because it goes back to what I was saying about dialogue clearly being important to you. And obviously not just in regards to the music itself, but just, I mean, clearly you as a person that you understand that with how people live their lives and how people treat live music, that it's important to be candid in that regard. I thought that was very interesting. Some ticket prices are so expensive because the show and the production is so great, it's worth it. And some shows are priced at the same price because that's what it, things are priced at at this venue, or that's the ticket price in that venue. But the show's not as good. And I think that, you know, I've always tried to maybe price things at the lower end of where, you know, and try and make it as cost effective as possible and make it work for as cheap as possible because. You know, live music shouldn't have to be so expensive that people are unable to see it. You know, I think that it's certainly become way more expensive. And I think it's just a matter of 
as long as it can, you know, pay for everything to work properly, you know, that that's as cheap as the ticket's going to be. But I think when people have seen me before, I've been on my own, or it's been a few of us. So a lot, a lot more, I think people are going to, you know, it's just being honest, I think, you know, 12, 12 hotel rooms and two vans is, you know, it's not the cheapest at the moment. So. Yeah. Well, I just, I, I love that though, because I mean, um, I, I, I've had a lot of experience being with, uh, around touring musicians in my life, uh, very fortunately. And I say this with uh, a lot of respect, but I'm sure you're aware that there's so many more musicians who don't. If they care, they're not open about how much they care. So it's beautiful seeing how much you care about the actual way prices inf- like work on people. Like I think that's very important. I think if the moment that, that that happens, it's the moment that you stop going to gigs, or like you only go to gigs in, you know, because it's something that you work with or it's in your part of the industry. But going to gigs as a fan, you kind of realise the mechanics of how venues work, what they're like when they're busy, you know, what's the situation with toilets, bar prices, you know, all of those things can make a a good gig great if they're done properly. And they can make great gigs like really feel like they've got a different atmosphere. And I think that that to me is part of putting on a show. You know, I think as much as that can be done anyway, you know, sometimes it's impossible. But in certain environments, if you can do that, and that means having to spend longer and think outside the box, that's that's kind of what I want to do. I think I can play acoustic on my own, you know, at different times. But if I'm going to do it with a band, I'm going to do it, you know, I'm trying to do it as properly as possible. Yeah, I definitely hear that. You know, I have a couple more questions for you, but thanks for taking the time to chat today. It's been that's really right. great chatting with you, man. You know, um, this is a bit more of a question for me, but uh, rather than the people listening, but I'm sure they'll enjoy it also. Um, I know back in 2014, you took part in uh, Damon Alburn's Africa Express, and uh, he's quite a hero of mine, and I love what he's done with that particular area. And I'm sure that was a very significant experience for you. I mean, tell me what was it like being part of that? I, I don't think I've ever learned so much about myself as a musician and how music makes people feel and how people interact with each other musically than anything else. I think it was, yeah, it was really fortunate. And I think it came from, you know, the first, I went to Kinshasa in the Congo and, you know, watching kind of Kanona num, number one and stuff and ability and, and uh, polyrhythm and how things stay tight and how, live music has movement and has fear and that kind of, I think the way that I finger pick and the, the kind of run very rhythm actually sit quite, you know, I was able eventually to kind of learn how to do it. And, and that just to just be in an environment where you can play with people that play in a completely different way and you play in a completely different way to them. And then you just kind of collide. You can, you find out so much stuff, you find out, you know, patience and listening. And, you know, that was just the moment that I, didn't really want to do stuff with computers, you know, and then going to Nigeria for celebration, I just like completely fell in love with Afrobeat and the idea that like the political music was joyous because it was communal. Like to get the message out there, you needed to bring people together en masse. And if people together en masse, the music needed to be good. And that kind of urgency and that kind of punk political, like in your face attitude, but it being kind of jazz and, you know, soul, and it's got, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's its own sound. 
you know, to see that, you know, to go to the Shrine and, you know, see Femi Kuti play in the Shrine was, yeah, I mean, it's so different. It's like going to, as a it's like going to a club for the first time and seeing something that's a truly great DJ in a club. (laughs) It's that same experience of like, wow, this is totally different and I'm well into it. That's pretty amazing. You know, that I love that you said one specific thing in regards to that, about like how joyous the political music could be. I remember uh, being at a friend's house in Boston a couple years ago, and he had like this compilation disc of uh, musicians from Mali. And uh, mm. he, was, he was playing it in the background, and the music was very uh, joyous and danceable, and you really did feel the exuberance. But then you would like, I remember just being curious, looking up the stories of the musicians, and a lot of it was very, like, horrific and, you know, harrowing things, but you would never get that from the music. You could tell that people very much felt uh, a sense of passion with the music in a joyous way. Yeah, I think... So, I, I don't know. I think when you're listening to music live, over-listening to music recorded as well, I think that's... that's the, the, the other thing is that the message has to translate when you're playing it. And not just for a culture of sitting and listening to it, you know, it's, a, it's message spreading as much as it is, you know, entertainment. And I think that's where the joyousness needs it to me. Feels it, it has to be essential because if you're going to play it to, to to spread a word or to challenge people, and you're going to play it over and over and over again, and you've been through it, I, it's if it's. I think that it, that has got to be really painful. And that's the music's joyous, and I think it spreads and it lifts people up and motivates people and touches them. And you know, I think that music and you know is linked to, and especially music and dance, it's linked to how people feel. And as know, sometimes I think that in the in the Western world, certainly in the UK, that big parts of music we've lost that we've lost that primal connection to it. But then if, you know, bands would come along and just completely wipe the floor with my way of thinking, and, and then it's like actually that's it's just it changes. But for me, like you know, the idea that I, I always grew up with political music being angry, you know, and the anger and punk and distorted guitars—that's the only way of anger. And then you know, I started to listen to hip hop, and it's like, oh no, that's anger in a different way. Righteous anger, you know, like Felicity, like that righteous, you know, standing up for yourself and for your people kind of anger. And then it's, it's different to me. It touches me in a different way. And yeah, that that's changed the way that I've looked at doing everything. Because the point I want to make is that even though the world feels shit, like it doesn't always have to be like you can make it better for not just yourself, but for everybody else. It just takes effort from everyone and that's always been my my only political motivation is that it is possible for us to make it better we've just got to do it and i think that that the idea that that's from, from a, an angry place is from a different place but it's from an angry place but to unite people in there or to try and get people to and know you want to present what it's going to be like not what it's like at the moment okay yeah, and i think yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, before I let you go, I mean, obviously you want people to hear your entire album. Uh, I think what's very interesting about your album is that even though it works as a cohesive body of work, 
it does feel like the songs are almost like these individual uh, uh, islands, like sonically and thematically. Uh, before I let you go, I'd love to hear what's your favorite song off the album and one you really hope connects with people. I mean, obviously, like I said, the album as a whole, but I'm sure there's a track on there that you really feel like, man, I hope people hear this. I think probably two different songs, but for two different reasons. The Adults and Always, the first two that put out, and I think they're the two different ends of the same, you know, sonic palette. Like Always is a track that I did with Shy FX, and it's very much about like, really intense feelings that people go through, whether it's, you know, radical change or whether it's, you know, people exiting their lives at different points. And how that and the mechanics of society can, can kind of compound things, you know. And I wanted to write a song that's like, actually, you know, this is something that's common. This is something that everyone goes through in different ways. But there will always be somebody that's understanding. It's about remembering that that's important. And then adults is the opposite. It's about like everything's kind of getting worse. It's getting worse because of manipulation. And they to me, they feel like they almost balance each other out. They're not solely on the same you know sonic place they've you know i think always is much more reflective and intense and i think adults is i, I think it's my minor song but i think it's probably to me it feels like the most joyous song on the record it kind of just builds to a point where you get a release i think probably those two have been my um, my picks for people to hear but yeah that probably changes in a couple of days <laughs> usually usually does yeah, I bet. You know, Sam, thanks again for taking the time to chat. It's been oh, thank really you very great much. chatting. Thanks for listening. No, of course. Absolutely. What's your